Well, this morning we have the privilege of having a guest speaker with us, Pastor Drew Jackson, originally from New Jersey, and having ministered in, there you go. Some Jersey love there. And uh, having ministered in multiple locations and multiple spaces, um, I, I think one thing that I would want to encourage us to remember that, that Pastor Edwin and Pastor Gus um, and I and Pastor Pedro, we, we, take the, we take the pulpit very seriously. And that means that not only do we um, take the responsibility of preaching very seriously, but when we invite someone in, we invite someone in with a reminder that this is someone we trust, that we love, and we know will minister to you effectively. Um, and this is a man who uh, cares deeply about the work of reconciliation, uh, the, about justice, about community renewal, but most specifically who loves Jesus a whole lot and recognizes that he's loved by Jesus a whole lot. Uh, recently, he moved uh, in back into the tri-state, into New York, and he is the lead pastor of Hope Church East Village, and it is a joy for us to welcome him as he comes and preach. Let's welcome Pastor Drew Jackson this morning. It is a joy, it's a privilege to be here uh, with you all this morning. Um, yeah, I'm just, just, just being here and uh, I just sense the presence of God in this place. The spirit of God is thick in this place. And so, yeah, it's, it's a real honor for me to be here. So this morning, um, we're going to be in John chapter 21. John chapter 21, and so if you have a Bible or your Bible app on a phone or uh, uh, you can just listen to me as I read this, I'm going to be reading through the first 19 verses of John chapter 21. And so to give you context, this is right, this is, this is post-resurrection. So shortly after Jesus has risen from the dead, he's appeared to a number of people, and so uh, we're going to pick up where John is writing here in John chapter 21. And it says, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. He threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came into the boat, dragging in the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard 
and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch yourself, stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So I want to talk to you this morning from the topic beside the fire beside the fire. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful to be in this place. We are grateful to be here in your presence because we know that when we gather in your name, you are here. So Lord, I know that we're coming into this place with all sorts of things on our minds and hearts. I'm coming into this place with all sorts of things on my mind and my heart, Lord, but I pray that whatever we're coming in with, you would allow us to, to be attentive to what your spirit wants to say to your church this morning. Lord, meet us where we are. Meet us in the heights of joy if that's where we are. Meet us in the depths of sorrow if that's where we are, in every space in between. And Lord Jesus, would you come and just move in this place, walk in and out of these rows and minister to our hearts. And Lord, I pray that that the, the soil of our hearts, God, would be good soil, that it would be prepared to receive the word that you have for us this morning. And so, Lord, I pray that more than anything, the name of Jesus will be lifted high and exalted in this place. And so to that end, I ask that you would allow me not to be a distraction to what you want to do, but that Jesus will be lifted high so that Jesus might be all in all. So hide me behind your cross, Lord. And to that end, I ask that you would allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart to be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, our strength and our redeemer in whom we trust. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. So it's been said before that what comes out of you during times of great pressure is who you really are. Some of you, when you hear that, you're feeling really good about yourselves because you would say that you are a person who thrives under pressure. Anybody like that in here? You thrive under pressure. And it's true. Some of us in here are people who just perform well under pressure. In sports, those are the athletes we call clutch, right? 
the, 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 the Michael Jordans, the Tom Brady's, the Kobe Bryant's. Those are the ones that you want with the ball in their hand when your team is down one and the clock is winding down. I'm talking to the people in here who would, you, you, you know, you have a project to work on or a paper to work on, and you wait until the last minute to get that thing done. You take it right up into the deadline because, because for you, you think that that's when you can step your game up, right? You take it right up to the deadline. See, when I was in school, that wasn't me. That was not me. I, I was a person that had to get my work done in advance because I hated the feeling of having stuff hanging over my head. Hated that feeling. See, the pressure brought out the worst in me. Being flustered, being anxious, rushing my work just to get it done. So I may be biased, but I don't think it's quite fair to say that pressure exposes who we really are. But what if I said it this way? Who we are at our worst is who we really are. Now, I don't actually believe that that's 100% true. Pastor Jack, he just said that. He said, we are not defined by our worst moments. But I do believe that in our worst moments, the stuff that comes out of us is stuff that we need to pay attention to. See, each one of us has had the experience probably more than once of seeing things come out of us in certain circumstances that we didn't know were there. And the things we saw, we didn't like. Maybe the worst of you shows itself during times of stress. Maybe the worst of you shows itself when you're feeling uncertain and like you have no direction. Maybe the worst of you shows itself when you feel like you're in a box and you're tired of people trying to tell you what to do. Maybe the worst of you shows itself when you fail at something. Whatever it is for you, the point that I'm trying to make is that all of us have parts of ourselves that we would self-identify as the worst. The parts of ourselves that we would rather keep hidden or that sometimes we don't even know are there. You know, philosophical and theological writers down through the ages have referred to this as our shadow. And they've said that the shadow is the part of the self that we don't want to see, that we're always afraid of, and that we don't want others to see either. But what do we do when our shadow comes out? What do we do when the worst of who we are exposes itself for all to see? What do we do when we have to confront that part of ourselves that we don't like? See, most of us, because we're human and it's hardwired into our humanity, we try to run and hide. We try to cover ourselves up so that what we consider to be our worst parts are no longer exposed. Because when we're exposed, the first thing that washes over us is the feeling of shame. And if you've been living for any amount of time, you know that feeling. Shame has probably at one time or another, or even presently for some of us, walked as our close companion. See, shame is that voice that says, if they discover this, about me, 
they won't love me. They won't accept me. So I better put my best self forward. It's that voice that says, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not enough. If you're sitting here listening to this this morning and you can identify, I just want to let you know that you're not alone. You're not alone. Look at your neighbor, tell him you're not alone. You're not alone. See, as we all sit in that together and as we all feel that experience together, let's look at John chapter 21 and in the Gospel of John, we find Jesus' first disciples post-resurrection standing on the beach. And they really have no idea what to do with themselves. See, Jesus had already appeared to them twice, letting them know that he's alive. And in the previous chapter, in John chapter 20, Jesus gives his disciples this this crazy, mind-blowing mission when he says to them, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Jesus says to them, I'm sending you out into the world to change the world, and I'm giving you my spirit to empower you. But when we leave chapter 20, and we arrive on the shores of chapter 21, we don't find the disciples doing world-changing things. We find them standing on the beach trying to figure out what to do next. And as usual, they look to Peter. See, Peter was their leader. He, he set the tone for the group. He gave them their cues. But after experiencing the resurrected Jesus and being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, you know what Peter says? See, Jesus, back in chapter 20, Jesus said, I'm breathing on you to give you my spirit. I'm sending you out and I'm empowering you. Peter standing on the, on the beach with the rest of his disciples and they're looking out at the rest of their lives and he says to them, let's go fishing. Let's go fishing. See, Peter was a fisherman by trade. And he went back to doing what he knew how to do. And I think I understand why. I think it has everything to do with shame. Shame because of his story and his past. Shame because of what was exposed in Peter at his moment of greatest pressure. And one of the things that shame does is it holds us back from living out the fullness of our calling. See, Peter sits at the center of the story in John chapter 21. And what happens with Peter is what needs to happen with every disciple. See, if you're not familiar with Peter's story, you should know that Peter was Jesus' most, shall we say, confident disciple. Peter was always the first to speak up because... Peter believed that what he had to say was always the right thing to say. You know anybody like that? Don't don't look at them right now. Don't do that. See, when Jesus told his disciples that he was going to be crucified, Peter stood up and said, and I paraphrase, over my dead body, if they're going to get to you, Jesus, they got to go through me. When Jesus told his disciples that they would all abandon him, Peter says, they might all leave you, but I ain't going nowhere. 
And when Jesus told Peter that he was going to deny Jesus three times, Peter said, I'll never deny you. In fact, I'll die with you. But on the night that Jesus was arrested, as Peter stood watching his trial at a distance, warming his hands by a charcoal fire, the pressure of the moment became too much for him to bear, and his worst self was put on display. Three times, just like Jesus said, Peter denied knowing Jesus at all. He, he denied knowing Jesus. He denied having any association with Jesus. Because if it was discovered that Peter was one of Jesus' boys, he would have probably been nailed to a cross too. Peter's shadow was exposed that night by the fire. That part of himself that he didn't want to see and that he certainly didn't want anybody else to see. See, on that night, Peter saw come out of him someone whose word meant very little. Someone whose loyalty was fleeting when it was tested. He saw someone who wasn't the leader that everybody told him that he was. And someone who wasn't the friend that he thought he was. He saw someone whose love was conditional. And he saw someone who put the preservation of self over everything else. And this wasn't something that was just private. This was public disgrace. This was, this was public disgrace. Everybody saw this happen. This was failed leadership. This was Peter having to confront his own limitations and his own weaknesses, maybe for the first time. It's one of those moments that makes you think to yourself, maybe I'm not everything that I thought I was. And when you go through something like that, it's not easily forgotten. It's not easily forgotten. Those are the moments that sear themselves into your brain. So it's no surprise to me that when we find Peter in John chapter 21, we don't find him leading the disciples into the new call that Jesus had given them. Even after seeing the risen Jesus and after having received the Holy Spirit, Peter was still stifled by shame. And as Brene Brown points out, shame is different than guilt. Guilt says, I made a mistake. Shame says, I am a mistake. For Peter, shame said, I am a bad leader. I am a bad friend. I am a bad disciple. Shame whispered in Peter's ear, you're not loyal. You're not, you're not trustworthy. You don't love Jesus like you say you do. Stop fronting. And if all I am is the sum of my worst failures, then I certainly can't do what Jesus is calling me to do, and I might as well go back to doing what I know how to do. So I'm going fishing. Listen, fishing wasn't bad. It just wasn't the call. 
Fishing wasn't bad, it just wasn't the call. It represents the, the, the thing that Peter and the disciples ran back to because of the shame that kept them from embracing what Jesus had called them to do. Every one of us in this room has a calling that Jesus has placed on our lives. Every one of us. No, no, I'm not talking about a calling into ministry or anything like that. I'm talking about the call to live into the fullness of who God has created you to be. I'm talking about the call to be an agent of truth and love and justice and peace in this world. I'm talking about the call to be someone who expresses loyalty in your relationships and humility in your leadership. I'm talking about the call to be someone through whom the power of the spirit of God is made known in this world and someone who bears witness to the kingdom of God. There's not one of us in here who does not have that call on our lives. But so many of us don't embrace the fullness of our call because we are stifled by shame and paralyzed by past failures. The shame we live in has become our straitjacket. And it prevents us from moving freely and living fully. But I stopped by this morning to tell you Recovery House of Worship. I stopped by this morning to tell you that the story doesn't end with the disciples standing in shame on the beach. The story does not end there, but thank God that as they're out in their boats, casting their nets, toiling away, and coming up empty, someone shows up on the shoreline. Someone shows up on the shoreline. If you didn't understand me, let me make it plain for you. See, as they're toiling in their shame, as they're casting their nets, and they're standing in their, their shame, Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up. And whenever Jesus shows up, you better believe that the story is about to be rewritten. The story is about to be rewritten. See, look what happens. It says next. It says, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Now, if you're familiar with the stories told in the four Gospels, you know that this isn't the first time that this episode has occurred. In Luke chapter 5, when Jesus first calls the disciples to come follow him, the same thing happened. They were out in their boats fishing, catching nothing, but Jesus shows up on the shore and tells them to throw their nets on the other side of the boat, and they end up catching a whole mess of fish. That's when Jesus says to them, from, from now on, you're not going to fish for fish anymore. You're going to fish for people. Jesus, he, he redefines their vocation for them. That's when they receive their first call. And, and as soon as this scene happens again, it's like deja vu. It's like deja vu for them. And they instantly recognize it's Jesus. And I love what Peter does as soon as he recognizes that it's Jesus. As soon as he sees that it's Jesus, he, he does a swan dive off of the boat. 
and he swims like Michael Phelps back to the shore, and he's, he's like, I got to see Jesus. I got to see my Lord. It's him. It's him. But this is what happens next. It says, when they got out on land, they saw charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Did you catch that? I don't want you to miss. I don't want you to miss this. See, Peter arrives on the shore, and, and he sees Jesus standing by a charcoal fire. See, the only other time that a charcoal fire is mentioned in the Gospel of John is when Peter denies Jesus. John chapter 18 is Peter is standing outside of the door where Jesus's trial is happening. It says the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. And now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. See, this isn't an accidental detail. When Peter sees Jesus standing by that fire, John, the, the writer of the gospel, wants us to understand what's happening. Everything that happened at that first charcoal fire is brought to the surface for Peter once again. He's got to come face to face with his greatest failure. He's got to look his shadow in the eye. To, score, to correspond with his three denials, Jesus asks him three times, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Peter, do you love me? And no doubt those feelings of shame that washed over Peter as he was standing by that first fire began to wash over him again. See, in my imagination, I see Peter when, when Jesus is asking him these questions, do you love me, not even being able to look Jesus in the eye. Looking down at the ground, Jesus, you know, you know I love you. Not even being able to look him in the eye. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, why would Jesus do that to Peter? Why would Jesus do that? Bringing up somebody's moment of greatest failure seems like nothing short of cruel. People usually only do that when they're trying to shame somebody, put somebody on blast, call them out. And, and I can imagine what might be going on in the, in the minds of the rest of the disciples as, as Peter and Jesus has stepped off to the side, and they know everything that happened with Peter. They know about the denials, and so they're probably in their minds saying, uh-oh, uh-oh, Jesus about to get on him. Jesus about to get after him. But see, Jesus has no interest in shaming Peter. In fact, Jesus' only concern is that the burden of shame that had been weighing Peter down is lifted off of his shoulders. See, Jesus was doing something that modern psychology is now just discovering. As Brene Brown says in her research on shame, only when we are brave enough to explore the darkness will we discover the infinite power of light. Only when we are brave enough to explore the darkness will we discover the infinite power of light. See, shame thrives in darkness. Shame thrives in secrecy. 
Shame thrives in the shadows. But shame loses its power when it's brought into the light. See, Jesus was calling Peter to step out of his darkness, out of his hiding, and into the light. Jesus was calling Peter to to be fully exposed with his best self and his worst self on full display. And he was asking Peter to trust him with all of it. Can you trust me with all of it? The best of you and the worst of you. He wanted Peter to know what what Paul would later come to say in Romans chapter 10, verse 11, that anyone who trusts in him will not be put to shame. Anyone who trusts in him will not be put to shame. And so as Peter is standing there by the charcoal fire, fully exposed, nothing hidden, Jesus is communicating to Peter and he's communicating to you and I, I see you. I see all of you. I see your flaws, I see your failures, and guess what? I forgive you. And guess what? I love you. And guess what? You don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to hide. See, for those familiar with the biblical narrative, this is a moment of what will be called reversal of what happened in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve ran and hid from God after their failure, and when God came looking for them, they were hiding in the bushes, having covered their nakedness with fig leaves because they didn't trust that their relationship with God could withstand that amount of failure. And so they hid. But see, when Jesus went to the cross, he took our failure and our shame. We okay? We okay? Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. Keep going. See, when Jesus went to the cross, as I said, he took our failures and our shame. And he put those things to death so that they could not hold any power over us anymore. And because Jesus dealt with your failure and shame on the cross, you need to know that those things can never separate you from your creator. They can never separate you from the one who has called you and who has placed a calling on your life. See, at that fire, Jesus gave Peter a fresh calling. And I love that Peter didn't receive his calling by handing Jesus a resume full of his best stuff. But he handed him a resume full of failure. And Jesus, looking at Peter, looking at the best of Peter and the worst of Peter, said, feed my sheep, Peter. Tend to my lambs. Feed my sheep, Peter. Peter, come build my church with me. 
the one who denied Jesus, the one who failed, the one who had all of his weakness put on display, that's the one that Jesus says, I'm building this thing with you. I'm building this thing with you. I love it. See, if our failures don't keep Jesus from calling us, why do our failures keep us from embracing his call? If our failures don't keep Jesus from calling us, why do our failures keep us from embracing his call? See, Jesus has called you. And Jesus wants to do world-changing, city-transforming things through you. Through you. And he wasn't blind to your failure when he called you. He wasn't blind to your weaknesses when he called you. He wasn't blind to your own limitations when he called you. So don't let your failure and your past and your shame hold you back from embracing the call that Jesus has on your life. And hear me when I say this. Jesus isn't concerned that you never fail as a disciple. It's not Jesus' concern when he says, come follow me. But he wants you and I to know that when we fail, because we will, just embrace that and accept it, we will fail. But when we fail, when we are weak, when we come up short, his love for us will not change. His love for us will not change. See, it it, it makes sense to me that the last thing that Jesus said to his disciples, the last word, the last message that he wanted to leave them with before he went to the cross was he said to them in John chapter 15, and we just reflected on that text in our moment of silence there. He said to them, listen, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Translation, you're weak. You, you, apart from me, you can't do anything. You can't. But it's through your weakness that you will bear much fruit. As you abide in me, as you remain in my love, stay anchored in my love. Don't, don't move to this place where you think you need to have it all together. But just know, just know that you're weak and embrace it and allow me to do what I want to do through you. What I want to do through you. Because it's not about your might or your power, but by the power of the Spirit of God, says the Lord. See, before, before Peter denied Jesus, Jesus said to Peter, he said, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. He's desiring to tear you down, but I pray for you that your faith will remain. And when Jesus prayed for Peter, I I don't imagine that Jesus' prayer was, Father, would you keep Peter from denying me? I don't think that was Jesus' prayer. But I imagine Jesus praying, Father, would you keep Peter's failure from crushing him? Would you keep his failure from locking him in prison? Would you you keep his failure from causing him to never embrace this, this thing that I've called him to? I pray for you. 
See, as we move to, to close this out, see, what Jesus does here for Peter is beyond beautiful. Remember how I said earlier that Peter's failure at the, that first charcoal fire was one of those moments that you don't forget and that it's seared into your brain. Every time Peter would see a burning fire or smell the smell of charcoal, <laughs> he would think of that moment. Every time Peter was asked about his loyalty to Jesus, he would think about that moment. And Peter would have many moments, many opportunities to deny Jesus again when he would be brought before the rulers and authorities and they would ask him, by what name do you do these mighty works in? By what name are you preaching in? Peter would have a lot of moments to deny Jesus once again. See, but what Jesus did for Peter was he tied the experience of the first charcoal fire to the experience of the second charcoal fire. And Peter's greatest failure would forever be connected to Jesus' great forgiveness. So from now on, thoughts of his failure would remind him of the reality of his freedom. Thoughts of his own weakness would remind him of the reality of God's strength on his behalf. The failure that was meant to keep him in chains would be the thing that would forever remind him of his freedom. But isn't this what Jesus does, though? Isn't this what Jesus does? This, this is the reality of the cross. See, the thing that was meant to signify defeat ended up symbolizing Jesus' greatest victory. Jesus was arrested and he was ridiculed, mocked, and spit on. He was told that he was a blasphemer, a hater of God. He was someone who was strung up on a Roman cross and executed as an enemy of the state, crucified between two criminals. This was Jesus. And Rome hung Jesus up on display for everyone to look at so that they could point to Jesus and say, this is your king? This is your Messiah? And they, they took out his beard and they stripped him naked. And the whole purpose of crucifixion was shame. That was it. Shame. To shame this person and to, 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 to quiet the masses down so that they would never challenge Rome again. Because this is what happens when you try and challenge. But see, what God does is he takes our moment of greatest shame, and he turns it into our moment of greatest glory. Yes. Yes. God takes our shame, and he turns it into our glory. Yes. See, God has a way of turning our shame, our wounds, into our glory. And some of you, you, you need to have that moment. You need to have your moment with Jesus on the beach right now, this morning. This morning. You, you, you need to come and stand by your own charcoal fire. You need to stand in his presence, fully exposed, nothing hidden, and hear the words, you're forgiven. You're loved. 
you're called. Let Jesus turn your shame into your glory. And trust him. Trust him with everything. Trust him with all of you. Because as the word says, those who trust in him will never be put to shame. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus. Jesus. Thank you that you meet us in the midst of our great shame. And you don't do that to push us further down into the dirt. But you come to lift us up. You come to to pick us up to resurrect those things that we thought were dead. To breathe new life, to, to set us free, to let us know that we're forgiven. That our past does not have to define us. And that the things that we thought were our greatest shame, you say, no, no. Let me turn that into your glory. Let let, let the the place of your woundedness become the place out of which you, you minister healing to the world. Thank you, God, that this is what you do on our behalf. You are a God who transforms. You are a God who makes new. You make all things new. And that all things includes our failures. That all things includes our shame. You make all things new. And so God, I pray this morning, all across this place, Lord, with wherever we're at, all of us can identify with Peter. We can identify our moments of failure. We can identify our places of shame. And God, I pray that as we identify those places and as we confront those things, that that we would hear your voice as stronger than the voice of shame speaking over us. I love you. You are mine. You are not your worst failure. You are my child. This is who you are. And I've called you. I've called you. So come with me. Come follow me. Don't let your shame tie you down. So we praise you, God. And I pray that you would give us the courage, the courage, God, to step into what you've called us to, who you've called us to be. People who know they are loved. It takes courage to believe and to walk in the reality of being loved. Would you allow us to step into that? So we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.